Right, okay. Do we do we think everyone's here who's coming? Ah. Right. Oh well, th thanks for coming. Uh, it, it, it increases the chances of one being asked back again next year if someone comes to your seminars. I think, I think the way they do it here, if, if, if no one comes to your seminars for 10 consecutive years, they stop inviting you back. So I think I'm, I think I'm probably safe for, for next year so far. Right, okay, well the... um. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll be up in uh, Connecticut in, uh, I think, October time. Yeah, so... Uh, Oh no, 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 no. We'll be here for another uh, month or so. We'll, we'll be down in Florida for a few weeks. So, uh, yeah, over oh, oh here. We received more uh, hospitality here in the south. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, we've yet to go to the north. Um, I mean, we, we spend time in the northwest, up in Seattle, okay. but we've, we haven't yet done the northeast. We, we, thus far, we've only ever landed and taken off from there. So. Got to, got to try to take the edge off. Right, okay, well. Um, now, the title I was given for this particular seminar is this, The Divine Design, Apostolic Patterns as the Authority for Biblical House Church. Now, I spent a couple of weeks trying to work out what that meant, and when eventually I figured it, it struck me that um, possibly this is going to be perhaps the most important talk that there's going to be at this conference. Now, let me qualify, not because I'm doing it, <laughs> but for the simple reason that, in actual fact, I think it's, it, it's this talk, perhaps, that indicates the very reason why a conference such as this takes place every year. And in effect, what I'm going to be doing in, in this talk is, is giving you the reason why we're doing this stuff anyway. And I'm going to be showing you that the way that we're banging on about, hey, you know, there's a particular way to do church and this is it, that our reason for doing it is because it's what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm going to be demonstrating in this talk. There are lots of reasons for doing what might generically be called house church. And, as you know, I, 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 I don't like the terminology of house church. I speak in terms of biblical church. Now, we have to do that because sadly, 1900 years ago, people invented unbiblical church. In New Testament times, you would never have needed the phrase biblical church because there weren't unbiblical churches to distinguish yourself from. There was only one type of church, the very thing that I'm going to demonstrate to you. But a biblical church will indeed be a house church. But you can be a house church without being biblical in any other way. So, so the point is, that the push here is that we're doing this because it's biblical. There are people who are getting into house church because, you know, they kind of think, hey, that, that's a cool idea. That's not a good reason for doing house church. Uh, there, there are people pining in it's the latest fad. They'll, they'll last a while and then they'll read another book and they'll go do something else because that's the latest fad. And there are people who are doing house church for purely pragmatic reasons. They think, hey, we think it's going to work. You know, and wow, this is going to be a great tool for evangelism you know, rapid church planting and all that kind of stuff. And they're doing it for pragmatic reasons, because it works. But the problem is, if they think later on, if they get exposure to something else that they think will work better, they'll drop this and they'll go do that, because they're acting out of pragmatism. That's not why we're doing this. That's not why I am part of a church that is like the church I'm part of, if you see what I mean. The reason that we're doing it is because it's what the Bible teaches. 
as simple as that. Whether it works or not is not, frankly, my concern. If it's what the Bible says, it's got to be right. And obviously, if you do what the Bible says and you do it correctly, of course it will work, but that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it predominantly because I'm going to demonstrate to you that it is what Jesus has commanded. So the question that we're going to be asking in this talk is this. Does the New Testament teach us or show us that there is a set way to do church? That's what we're asking. In Scripture, do we see a set way to do church or do we see that it's wide open, just go as the Lord leads you, any which way you like? Now, you know full well, at Matthew 16, verse 18, pretty well-known verse, Jesus said, I will build my church. So what we're asking is, given that Jesus said that, that he's going to build his church, has he given us in Scripture any blueprints that might suggest what he wants this church to look like? If you are in the fortunate position of being able to have a builder build you a house, Okay, well, you're going to need to give him some blueprints because he's going to need to know what the shape is, what sort of house do you want, okay? Now, if you just say, well, just build me a house, if you don't give him a blueprint, I mean, he might be one of these construction workers with a sense of humour and he might build you a big igloo and you might not want a big igloo. So what we're looking for is do we see in Scripture a blueprint? Now, if there's no blueprint, you do it how you like. But if we see a set blueprint, mm, that's going to be interesting. Now, if you, if you go with me to John, John chapter 14, and I just want you to see some stuff that Jesus said to the disciples. And in John, John chapter 14 and verse 26. And Jesus is here talking to the apostles. All right? Now, John 14 verse 26, look what Jesus said. But the counsellor the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So, what we have here, Jesus is saying, um, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring to remembrance everything I've told you. Jesus told the disciples an awful lot of things during the three and a half years he walked on the earth with them. But here, he doesn't just say he's going to bring to remembrance everything I've told you, he says, he will teach you all things. Now, that would suggest there was more to come. Go to chapter 15. And these verses all come from the same discussion that Jesus is having with the disciples. This is one kind of, you know, talk that he's having with them. And in chapter 15 and verse 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my Father I have made known to you. Now, you might have noticed that if you read through the Gospels, and the Gospels really are the only way we have of getting access to any teaching that Jesus gave the disciples eyeball to eyeball. All right. But obviously there was more to come. So we have the teaching that Jesus did that's recorded in the Gospels, you, we, we can read that, we have access to that. But we're just going to ask the question, but how are we going to have access to all these other things that Jesus said that he was going to, you know, that the Holy Spirit was going to reveal to the apostles? Go, go to chapter 16, again this is still the same conversation, 
and I'll start reading from verse 12 and Jesus says I have much more to say to you but more than you can now bear so in the Gospels we have basically what Jesus has told the disciples up to this point but now Jesus is saying there's tons more loads more things I want to tell you but you can't bear them now but when he, the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth so the point is Jesus told the apostles an awful lot while he was with them and we have that recorded in the Gospels but there was loads more he wanted to tell them but he said the Holy Spirit's going to bring that to you later on and indeed it was after the Holy Spirit came to them that all that other stuff was revealed so we have some of what Jesus wants us to know in the Gospels but he told the disciples the rest of what I want you all to know I'm going to tell you through the Holy Spirit when he comes to you so we know how to access what Jesus had told them face to face while he was on earth with them you read the Gospels but how are we going to access all this other stuff that Jesus wanted to give to them? Well, the answer to that is we have to access the Apostles' teaching. If we go to Scripture, the, the Gospels, we get Jesus' teaching. But now we need the Apostles' teaching because they and they alone had the rest of what Jesus wanted us to know. And this is why, if you go to Acts chapter 2, immediately after the Christian church as it were has come into being in Acts 2 and verse 42 speaking of all the people who have become believers after Pentecost it says this they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship the breaking of bread and prayer but why does it say to the apostles teaching why doesn't it say to Jesus' teaching well of course it's Jesus' teaching but he gave it to the apostles he hadn't given it to them direct while he was on earth. This isn't stuff where they're saying, hey, Jesus, you know, that time when we were in Galilee, do you remember Jesus told us this? Some of their teaching was doing that, but the rest of it was given to them by the Holy Spirit. And the reason that the apostles were doing all the teaching in Jerusalem at that time, they were the only ones who had the full revelation. So how do we access when these believers were gathering to get the apostles' doctrine, well, they got it. How do we get it? Surely it can't just be for them. How do we access it? Because the answer, you know it, is the New Testament. That all the truth that the Holy Spirit was going to read, reveal to the apostles is now in the form of Scripture. Be careful when you get this teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead you into all the truth as if somehow there's more revelation to come. There isn't any more revelation to come. When Jesus spoke to the apostles, he was saying, the Holy Spirit will lead you into new truth, because there was truth Jesus hadn't given them. That only applies to the apostles. In this regard, the ministry of the Holy Spirit now is not to lead us into new truth, there is new truth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit now is to lead us into the truth that we already have here in its entirety. So we need the Holy Spirit to open up the word for us, but unlike the early church, we do not need the Holy Spirit to reveal anything new to us because we have it all in Scripture. So therefore, basically what we're coming to at the moment is that if there was any design that Jesus had for the church. Now you can read through the Gospels, you don't find very much up. Jesus didn't say much about the church while he was on earth with the disciples. You won't find a great, you'll know that there's going to be the church, but you don't find out a great deal about it. 
some, but not much from Jesus directly. So what we're leading up to is that anything, any blueprints, if there are any, for what a church ought to be like, we're going to find it in the scriptures that were written under the direction and auspices of the apostles. We're going to find it in the biblical record. We're going to find it in Acts, seeing what the apostles did, and then we're going to see it reflected in the rest of their writings. But we've got a problem, and the problem we immediately hit up against is that the main writer of the New Testament wasn't even a believer at this point. When Jesus said to the apostles, hey, I'm going to reveal the rest of the truth to you that you need to know, Paul was not even converted. So my goodness, but and yet Paul writes the greater bulk, as it were, of the New Testament. So what on earth are we going to do with that? Well, let's, let's go to Galatians 1. Because we can't really turn seriously to read anything Paul wrote until we've sorted this little conundrum out, can we? Because the whole point is, the original apostles, they got this directly from Jesus himself and then the rest from the Holy Spirit later. But they had been eyeball to eyeball with Jesus for three and a half years. So we can, we can think, well, that's pretty trustworthy. We can trust those guys, can't we? But what about Paul? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, and let's just read... Um, uh, verse 11. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, up to the point when Paul became a Christian, you were in one of two groups of people you were an apostle who had got it all directly from Jesus himself, Bible to Bible, or you were someone else who only found out about it from them. But here, we have the appearance of another apostle who's like the original ones. Because Paul didn't learn it from anyone. He didn't sit under the teaching of the original apostles and get it from them. Paul says, I got this directly from Jesus, just like they did. Now, Paul didn't walk with Jesus for three and a half years like the other disciples did. But, in, in the second letter, I think it is to the Corinthians, Paul just kind of slips in that he had actually spent time in heaven with Jesus. And Paul said, I did get it all from Jesus. So Paul was just like the other apostles in that regard. Go to... Um, to, to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Because Paul went on in Galatians to say, look, I went to see the other apostles and they okayed what I was preaching. See? Well, anyone can say that, you know. So, so let's see, but what, what did the other apostles think about it? Did they think that Paul was an apostle in the same way they were? I.e., did they consider Paul to be unique like they were? Now then, in 2 Peter chapter 3, let's read verse 15. And Peter writes and he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also write to you, wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking on these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Now this tells us two vitally important things about how Peter understood things. Peter understood two things. Firstly, that he and the other apostles were writing scripture. 
the infallible inspired word of God and the other thing it tells us is that Peter knew that Paul was as well so what we have in Paul the Apostle although he wasn't around with Jesus when the others were nevertheless he got it all directly from Jesus personally just like the others had only in a different way and elsewhere in Corinthians Paul speaks about being an apostle he says as one born out of time an untimely birth because he came later you see Jesus had the twelve okay Judas wasn't actually in the picture never was so off goes Judas all right replaced by Matthias now was that right or wrong was Matthias a true apostle don't really quite know don't think it matters but what we do know and what does matter is that Paul was an apostle just like the original ones so therefore Paul received this truth this all the truth from the Holy Spirit the same as the original apostles had so therefore what we're seeing quite simply at this point is that this all the truth these other things that Jesus wanted to teach the disciples the apostles but that which he wasn't going to teach them while he was on earth this all the truth that we need to know is now here in the written form of the New Testament okay so therefore question how do we access all the truth that we need to know answer scripture the New Testament along with the Old Testament the entire Word of God so there's no new revelation to come put aside and reject any talk of a new way of doing church put aside any talk of a new way of doing anything when somebody says hey God's doing a new thing now if by that they're meaning God is showing us truth in scripture that we've forgotten and it's new to us a-okay but anything that is new God's doing a new thing that can't be verified from scripture reject it that's not the Lord that's a deception you can only establish whether the Holy Spirit is doing something by testing what that thing is against scripture and if it doesn't tie up with scripture it's not the Holy Spirit doing it the Holy Spirit does not go against the written word and I'll tell you why because he wrote it it was the Holy Spirit who enabled all these men to write scripture well he's not going to tell us one thing in written form and then start telling us other things prophetically that is a nonsense but it's sadly a proposition that many many Christians buy into they think that it's okay to receive things from the Holy Spirit that go against scripture or isn't verified in scripture no Paul warns against that he says deceiving spirits will go out that's deceiving spirits so where we've come now is we're saying right we're just asking is there a blueprint in scripture is there one way to do church and if there is one way to do church then we will expect to see it as we go through scripture so what we're going to be doing okay is we're going to be asking two things now we're going to look at Paul's writings we're going to look at Paul and we've already seen Paul was an apostle he had this truth the same as the others did okay and we're going to be looking for two things first of all we're going to ask ourselves did Paul set up a particular type of church with particular practices to a particular blueprint i.e. we're asking did Paul plant one type of church only or was every church he planted totally different so did Paul plant one type of church and one type only that's the first question we're asking and then the second question we're going to ask is 
if it's the case that Paul did only set up one type of church, so there may have been variations, but were there certain things that were the same for every church? If that's the case, will we then go on to see Paul teaching that whatever those things are, they're mandatory for every church? Not just the ones he planted, but every church. So what we're asking quite simply is this. As we go through scripture, are we going to see lots of different types of churches? Are we going to see Baptist-type churches and Presbyterian-type churches and, 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 and kind of, you know, all uh, lots of different types of churches? Or are we going to see churches all based on the same blueprint, okay? And if that's the case, is this blueprint mandatory for all believers or was it only for them at that time, okay? So, let's now turn and have a look at some of the things that Paul wrote in regards to this. If you go to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, if you find verse 17. Philippians 3 and verse 17. Now, he says this, he says, Join with others in following my example, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So what Paul's saying here, look, we've given you a pattern. You've seen me live in that regards. Take note of others who are doing the same thing. Now obviously this pattern is very wide-ranging. This is, this is anything <coughs> to do with how you live the Christian life. This isn't just how you do church. But the point is, any patterns we see that Paul maintains are mandatory, it's got to be the same for us. So, and that's got to include how Paul did church. Now again, if we see Paul doing church in different ways, there's not a pattern there. But if we see a set pattern, then here Paul says, look, any patterns you see that I'm teaching, you make sure that, you know, take note of those who are doing it. I.e., it's good to do things the same as me. Alright? Uh, go to chapter 4. And in verse 9 he says, Whatever you have learned or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put into practice. This isn't Paul talking about what you believe, this is Paul talking about what you do. And so he says, look, the things that I'm teaching everyone that they should do, I'm doing them, and I'm saying that you ought to be doing them. Now, we're not talking about the fact that Paul was an apostle and church planter. Paul never said, everyone's got to do that. Paul quite specifically says, does everyone have the same gift? No. But what we're talking about is that whenever Paul is teaching about anything that affects the Christian life that applies to everyone, regardless of what your ministry is or your calling is, then what he's saying, where you see that kind of pattern, that kind of practice, you do what I'm doing. So he's not saying everyone's got to be a church planter or an apostle, no, but he's saying, however you see me live the Christian life, you must do exactly the same. So, if we understand anything about how Paul did church, well, that would tell us something about how we're meant to do church, wouldn't it? Seems logical to me. Let's keep going. Go to 2 Thessalonians now. 2 Thessalonians. And, um, chapter 2 and verse 15. I'm going to have to do a little bit of a correcting translations here. And Paul writes this, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings. Now, I've got to crack that. Uh, in the NIV, I use the NIV, the nearly inspired version, all right? And the Greek word there is paradisis, and it is not the Greek word for teachings. So that shouldn't be teachings. 
Paralysis means that which is handed on. It means repeated practice. It means established practice. The word here is tradition. Now, a tradition is something you do. You keep doing it. It's a repeated action. A traditional way of doing something is the way you do it. All right. So, let's read this again. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions we passed on to you. Who's, who's we? The apostles. Whether by word of mouth, teaching you eyeball to eyeball, or by letter. Scripture. So, what Paul is saying, look, any traditions that we have passed on to you, you hold to them. Do you remember what Jesus said to uh, the Pharisees about traditions that didn't come from Scripture? He was very annoyed about the idea of people having traditions that went against traditions in the Bible. And here, Paul says, we've handed on to you some traditions. All right? That means some practices. This isn't what you believe. This is what you do. Go over to ch uh, chapter 3 and in verse 6. And he goes on to say, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching, no, scrub that, practices, and who does not live according to the tradition you receive from us. And that's to do with practice. He's not correcting belief. He's correcting idleness. He's correcting the idea that you don't have to earn your own bread and you can sponge off of other people. That's a practice. So when Paul says, look, you must stick to the traditions, to the practices I've taught you. Now, this is as wide-ranging as you can possibly get. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some of the traditions that Paul taught. Um, you know, uh, have, having one wife only, that's a tradition. It's a practice. You know, so, so biblical practice in regards to marriage is that you just have one wife, okay? Um, you know, sort of like a biblical tradition is that you work and earn your own bread. You don't sponge off of other people. Uh, this would mean that, for instance, you baptise people like Paul baptised people. And it's interesting, if you go through scripture, how did the early church baptise? When it was the apostles who were saying how you do things, how did people baptise? Well, they did it differently to how the church has baptised for the last 1900 years. I'd, I'd put money on the table that if you're not part of a biblical church, all right, then whatever church you're now part of, or whatever churches you have been part of in the past, I'll put a $20 bill on the table and say, I'll bet that your church baptises wrong. And for this reason. <laughs> no, I'm sure he didn't, no. And you'll see that there's not actually a $20 note on the table. Right? I am speaking metaphorically, as it were. And uh, yeah, now, now the point is, since, since roughly around the end of the first century, virtually every Christian church has either baptised when it shouldn't, infants, or it hasn't baptised people when it should. Because in Scripture, universally, the moment someone said, I believe in Jesus, they baptised them. They did it there and then. They didn't wait for a meeting. They didn't call the church together. If someone, you know, if you led someone to the Lord out in the middle of the desert, you just got to the nearest thing you could that was water and you just did it however. No baptism classes. No church membership. Well, if you're being baptised, you're coming to membership. There is no church membership in the New Testament. So that's a practice. So therefore, we should baptise according to apostolic tradition because who knew how baptism ought to be done Jesus did who did he pass it on to the apostles if someone came along and said well no I think we ought to baptize differently who's right and who's wrong whatever the apostles did is right uh, question yeah. when they talk about baptizing your whole household is there a couple of scriptures where they do that yeah so if there was a two-year-old in there they didn't baptize the two-year-old in the house well 
there's one verse that talks about you know the Philippian jailer comes to the Lord and it says his whole family you know the whole household was baptized. Well, I mean, who says there was a two-year-old there? The, the, the whole household believed in Jesus, and Paul baptized them immediately. The push is that nowhere in Scripture do we see any other practice except. See, so what I'm saying, we're simply establishing that any practices, set practices we see in Scripture, well, that's the way to do it. There is no other way to do it. So the question we're asking, because there's a hundred practices we could look at, but what's concerning us here is, are we going to see set church practice? That's what we're asking. We haven't got there yet. I'm just demonstrating that the apostles taught that there are practices that you must do it like this because that's the only way to do it, you see. Okay, um, so, so this, this is all encompassing. But if we see set church practice in Scripture, well then we've, we've established that there is only one way to do church. If we see the apostles doing it every which way, then there is no set practice. So the pattern then would be, go as the Lord leads you. But if we see one universal way to do it in Scripture and none other, then that's the way we're supposed to be doing it. Okay. And what I'm going to move on now is to show you that Paul taught one way to do church. Every, every church that Paul planted practiced the same way. And not only that, we're going to see that it's not even the case that that was Paul's chosen method kind of, I like to plant churches like this, but of course Peter's doing it different, and uh, you know, John's doing it different. I'm going to show you that this, I mean, Paul planted one sort of church only, but it's not even that that was Paul's design and Peter was doing it. Paul taught that every church should be the same. And the key to this is 1 Corinthians. And we're simply going to look at stuff that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And there's not a Bible commentator that you could come across who would argue with the fact that quite a lot of what Paul wrote in Corinthians was dealing with abuses when they came together and met as a church. So when they were coming together each, you know, the first day of the week, when they were coming together each Sunday, okay, there were certain abuses that they were doing. And we're going to see Paul correcting those abuses. But the key thing is that much of what he writes in 1 Corinthians is precisely to do with church practice. Because it's church practice that they were, as it were, getting wrong. So anything we need to know about church practice, we can glean from uh, the Corinthian epistle. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now then, we're going to read verse 2. But just take note that in verse 17 he starts dealing with the abuses of the Lord's Supper. So what we're going to read now is setting the context and he then moves on to say that you're getting the Lord's Supper wrong. There are things you're doing wrong in regards to it. So clearly we're dealing here with church practice. Now let's read what he says. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Again, scrub that, it's not teachings. That's a completely different Greek word. It's paradisis. So I'll read it again. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. 
tradition, established practice. What's he going on to deal with? He's dealing with what they're doing when they get together as a church. And he says, well done, you're holding to the traditions that I've taught you. You're practicing in the way that I have taught you to practice. Well done. But what we're going to see within the context of what they're doing, they're mucking it up. They're doing certain things wrong. The format is right. But within the limitations of that format, there are certain things they're doing wrong. But here's the point. Paul praises them for maintaining the correct format. Now, let me tell you as well that there's virtually no serious Bible scholar who would challenge the simple fact, because it's there black and white in Scripture, that when the Corinthian church met, there are certain things that we know from Scripture were true of the Corinthian church. And indeed, we know it's true of the Corinthian church because it was true of every church in the New Testament. And there are certain things that were true of every church in the New Testament. But it's definitely true of the Corinthian church, and that, that's the thing we need to know here. When the Corinthian church came together, there were certain things that were true of it. It met in someone's house. Every time a church is located in Scripture, it's in someone's house. But the important thing here, the Corinthian church met in a house. When it met, it was small, or you couldn't meet in a house. And the reason that every church was small, what the Corinthians were doing, when they met together on the Lord's Day, there were two aspects to their gathering. The first aspect, and I'm not dealing here with the order they did it in, but I'm saying just the first aspect was that they would have a time of sharing and praise and worship and prayer and teaching and building each other up that took a particular form, and it was this. No one led it. It was completely open and spontaneous, and the push behind it was that everyone be free to take part. So the first thing we see is when the Corinthian church came together, they had a time when sitting round, you know, in the lounge or whatever, in the dining room, sitting round, and they would share together. It was not a service that anyone led. It was a completely open, spontaneous participatory gathering that all were free to take part in and that was led by the Holy Spirit. Now the Corinthians were going bananas with the gifts of the Spirit. They were all speaking in tongues at the same time together. So Paul says, no, naughty, naughty, slap on the wrist. And he says, here are the rules for that open participatory time. But what does Paul say about the fact that that's what they were doing? He says, I praise you for holding that tradition. The other thing that the Corinthians did is that they had a meal together, and it was called the Lord's Supper. The very Greek word translated supper, date non, do you know what it means? It means a full meal, and that is all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. They were having a meal together. That was the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul was saying, but you're being very, very naughty, because you're in wrong relationship with each other. And some of you are getting there early, and you're eating all the food before anyone else has got there. So he says, you're within the format of having a full meal together, the Lord's Supper, you're doing it wrong. But what does Paul say about the fact that they are having the Lord's Supper as a full meal? He says, I praise you for holding to that tradition. Now, what have we just learned about the Corinthian church that was practicing church in the way that Paul, an apostle, had taught them? They would come together on the Lord's Day, in a house, they would have an open sharing time together, no one leading it, the expectation that Jesus would lead it through everyone there. 
and they would have the Lord's Supper, a meal together. Now, what's that? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's an extended family, because that's what a church is, it's an extended family. What do families do? You get together, you hang out, encourage each other, and you eat together. I've just described a church gathering. Church is an extended family. That is what the Corinthian church did. That was their church practice. Another type of church practice would be you go along to a religious building and there's loads and loads of you, you have a leader at the front and you have a service and then you have a little ritual with bread and wine. That, that's, that's, that's another type of church practice. Right? So we see Corinthian church practice, we see their church tradition, and then, okay, over here, the Southern Baptist church tradition, or Pentecostal churches, or Anglican churches, or Catholic churches, whatever. We see their practice over here. Okay? Now then, what does Paul say to the Corinthians? I praise you for your practice. Yeah? Um, yeah. I'm aware of um, about the Lord's Supper and open participation. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, ev every church, I mean, you know, at the end he, he talks about, you know, to someone, the church in his house, or something like that. But the point is, every time a church is located in Scripture, it's in someone's house. Now, with the Corinthian church, by definition, what they were doing involves small numbers. Because, of course, I mean, I'm, I'm not going into all these scriptures because that's not our brief, you know, to actually, you know, but Paul says, when you come together, each one has. And he says, you may all prophesy one by one. And in 1 Corinthians 12, and the context there is, is, is the gathering of a church. It's, you've got the one body in many parts, i.e. each individual there who's part of the church, and the push is every part of the body has got to be moving. That's the push of 1 Corinthians 12. And the context is, when a church comes together, it's talking about a biblical church, you see. And, and, and one of the ground rules is that no one part of the body must function to the detriment of the other parts functioning. So one of the ground rules in a biblical church is that when the church comes together in like its, its plenary gathering, i.e. the weekly gathering of the whole church, one of the ground rules is no one person dominates. And then I refer you to what I just said about how other churches practice which is the exact opposite to what Paul teaches. So the point is, you know, that sort of like no one's going to challenge the fact, you know, I mean, other talks here, and I did talks last year which were on tape, go into the details of, of what churches do when they meet. That, that's not the brief of this. But no one's going to challenge the fact that when the Corinthians met, they didn't have a service. It was open for all to take part in, and they had the Lord's Supper as a full meal. And all I'm establishing is that what we're seeing thus far is Paul says, well done, guys. Good on you. But, in your, in your open gathering, with everyone free to take part, you're doing this, that and the other wrong. So, please correct it. And he says, you're having the love feast. See, the love feast. You see, the Bible talks about the love feast. I mean, you know, in an unbiblical church, where's their love feast? Well, it's, it's a nonsense. They ain't got one. The love feast is the Lord's Supper, and a love feast is a feast. That's what it is. It's a meal together. So, the Corinthians were having the love feast, the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, well done, well done. Um, oh, but can, can you make sure that you're in right relationship with each other, and can you stop being selfish? See? But what we're seeing is Paul praises them for holding to the traditions that he passed on to them. Okay? So, we know that Paul set the Corinthian church up in a particular way, and he says, well done. Now, in regards to the Lord's Supper, let's now, very quickly, um, just go over to... Um, Oh, where's, where's the verse I want? Uh, oh, where's the verse I want? Okay, no, we'll come on to that in a minute. Okay, so just, 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 just pause there. Where we've just thus far come is that by seeing the format that the church is abusing, 
Or by seeing the abuses that Paul is correcting, we see the format that a church should take that Paul praises them for having. Okay. So what we've got to move on to now, so when he says, well done, you Corinthians, you know, kind of this format, this tradition I passed on to you, well done for keeping it, it might be that that was just for the Corinthian church and that every other church Paul planted was different. So now we've got to move on and find out how Paul thought in that regard. So let's now go to verse 16. Verse, you're still in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 16. Now, I don't want to get into what head covering means. That's not the brief of this talk. We haven't got time to go into what that practice is, okay? But what I want you to see is this. Paul says, he's answering questions that they've sent him in a letter. And they've said, look, what about veils and head coverings, etc., etc.? And he's answering the question. But look what he says. In verse 16, he's told them what the practice is. We're not going to get into that. And he says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, there's a question mark over whether that ought to read, if anyone wants to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But whichever translation is correct, the only thing I want you to see is this is universal. Paul saw it as universal. Nor do the churches of God. Well, that would be ridiculous if church practice was, nah, just goes and all leads you. Now, that's the point to get. In his understanding, Paul was planting churches in a way that every church was supposed to be like. Paul saw it as being universal. Now go to verse 23 and something he says about the Lord's Supper. And in verse 23, why are the Corinthians meeting in this way? Because Paul's taught them to do it. Why are they having an open participatory gathering? Because that's what Paul told them to do. Look, if he'd have said, no, what you do, you have a pastor, you buy a building and you have services, then that's what they should have done. But that isn't what Paul said. They're doing this because it's what Paul told them to do. And they're having the Lord's Supper as a full meal. The love feast, that's what the Lord's Supper is. Now look in verse 23, and this is Paul teaching about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord, I'll read that again, for I received from the Lord. Now, when Peter and, and, and that were teaching about the Lord's Supper, they could say, well, you know, Je- you know, Jesus was sitting there and he told us. So, boy, Peter received it from the Lord. But Paul didn't receive this from Peter. Paul got this from Jesus himself, okay? So whatever, whatever this is that Paul is saying, he got it from Jesus. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, etc., etc. So when Paul is writing to them, giving them some teaching about the Lord's Supper, all right, he's received everything Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper, he received from Jesus himself. What has Paul taught the Corinthians that the Lord's Supper is? It's a full meal. Why did Paul teach the Corinthians to have the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Because that's what Jesus told him to tell them. Because the Lord's Supper is a full meal. This is not an option. This isn't yet, but if the Lord leads you to do it a different way, that's okay. The the loaf and the cup is part of a full meal. And Paul says, and I told you that, everything I've told you about the Lord's Supper and the fact that it's a full meal is part of that, he says, I got that from Jesus. 
I'm not going to pick an argument with Paul. But I'm certainly not going to pick an argument with Jesus. Because he always wins and it's not fair. You're not arguing with Paul here. You're arguing with Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a full meal. Now then, do you think Jesus gave Paul one set of teachings for the Corinthian church and a different set for every other church? It's a nonsense. This is the Lord's Supper. This is how you do the Lord's Supper. It is a church meal. Period. And you know, if you're doing it any other way, you're doing it wrong. Because what we're seeing here, now, if we were seeing, uh, however the Lord leads you, but we're not. We're seeing set, universal practice. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, Paul is not there homing in on the Lord's Supper. He's homing in on the other aspects when they gather, this completely open participatory gathering, with, well, when you come together, each one has. You may all prophesy one by one. So in 1 Corinthians 14, we've got the ground rules for how you do that. You don't speak in tongues all at the same time. And neither do you persist in speaking in tongues if interpretation isn't happening. And if there's prophecy, you have two or three prophecies, then you just pause to take it in. All right? These are basic ground rules. And everything you say, everything you do, has got to be for the edifying of the saints. This is not the time to say, hey, weren't that a great X-Files last week? You know, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you can talk about that later. But the ground rules of this aspect of the gathering are all the things that he's dealing with. And in verse 33, and again, I'm not wanting to get into what it means, I'm just wanting you to see the push behind it, but in 1 Corinthians 33, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33, immediately after having given them the ground rules for testing prophecy, he says this. Now again, I'm not going to get into what it means, that's not our brief. But he says this, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. Now, I don't want to get into what that means, but what I want you to see is this. What is Paul dealing with here? It's church practice. That is his context. There is no other context. In other places, we've seen him talk about the traditions he passed on, which were wide-ranging. Indeed, in one place, it was all to do with working and providing for yourself, not sponging off of other people. But here, the context is purely and solely what they're doing when they come together on the Lord's Day. It's church practice, okay? And he says, as in all the congregations of the saints. Now, so, what is Paul's thinking? Does Paul think in terms of, well, yeah, there are different models of churches, you go with the one that is best for you. Paul would listen to all this stuff about church models. You know, what model of church is best for our society? So what are you going on about? Just, just do what I told you. Different models? Well, you've got the model. It's there. You've got the blueprint. You know, this is the shape of the house that Jesus is building. When Jesus said, I will build my church, the Greek word build specifically means to build a house. Because what is the church? Where do you live? You live in your house. You live in your home. You live with your family. We are God's family. A church is an extended family of God. It's where he lives. You live with your family. You know, so we are God's house. Now, if you build a house, you, you, you want it built as you designed it. And Jesus wants the church to be a particular way. I'm just showing you what that way is. There's one way to do church. Where we don't see set practices, feel free to vary. 
as the Lord leads you. But we've got here a minimal structure. And you must have that structure to be biblical. If you are not, as believers, meeting together in small numbers, when you get too big to do this, it's time to become two churches. If you are not gathering for a completely open, participatory gathering, with the Lord's Supper as a full meal, I'm not saying you're not part of a church, but you're not doing church in the way that the Bible describes. You are not in a biblical church. And we're just saying, hey, let's get some biblical churches going. That's all we're saying. There's loads of choice out there. What's the problem with having one more? Every unbiblical choice under the sun is out there. You feel free. We're just saying, oh, can we have some biblical choices now, please? And we're establishing here that Paul here is setting down structure that if you don't stick to it, then you're not doing what Scripture says. Let's have a look at verse 36 now. And he's summing up now. This is the end of his section dealing with when they gather as a church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he now moves on to completely different subjects, what the resurrection body is going to be like, okay? Completely different subjects. So here, he is now um, summing up everything that he's been dealing with with church practice. Now, look at this, verse 36. After this, you tell me, are you free to do church any which way? He says, did the word of God originate with you? Are, are you the only people it, it's reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. What's he just been writing to them? How to do church properly. And he says, it's the Lord's command. And what he's saying here, um, oh, you know, what? There, there are some prophets around, are there? Saying, thus says the Lord, you don't have to do what I've told you. What, there, there are people out there saying, no, there are different ways to do church that the Lord wants us to do. Oh, oh they're prophets, are they? Well, he says, well, this is the Lord's command. Who are you going to believe, that prophet or Jesus? What he's saying, Paul is here for all time, closing the door on even the faintest hint that Jesus wants churches to be anything other than like the Corinthian church. And Paul goes on to say, speaking of these people who know better than him, he says, if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Paul says, look, if someone comes along teaching a church practice different from what I've taught you, do you know what he says? Ignore them. Now he's not saying, ignore them, don't even speak to them. He says, ignore what they're saying, because they're wrong. Now, how would the Corinthians know they were wrong? Because Paul has given them scripture. So Paul says, you know what's right or wrong because what I've told you is right. It's a bit arrogant, isn't it, Paul? No, I got it from Jesus. I've just told you what Jesus told me. That's not arrogant. And when people tell us that we're arrogant to say there's one way to do church and we're doing it, well, okay, now, if you're going to say Beresford, you're arrogant, I, I probably am. I mean, you you'd have to ask people who know me. I mean, I might be saying what's true arrogantly. If I am, forgive me. God will have to deal with me. But it's not arrogant. What I'm, it's not arrogant by definition. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. That's all. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. If you've got an argument with it, you, you argue with Jesus. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. I may be doing it arrogantly, but there's nothing arrogant. I mean, is it arrogant to open the Scriptures with someone who's living in sin with his girlfriend and to say the Bible says that you must stop? Is that arrogant? Well, no, you're, you're doing it on the authority of the Word of God. 
I'm telling you on the authority of the word of God what a church should be like. The trouble is that all, when, when believers have different ways of doing church, and most of them do, I'll tell you who's arrogant they are. And they're being arrogant because they didn't get their way of doing church from Jesus. That's arrogant. It's arrogant to say, God has told me that this is what we're going to do. But no, you can't verify it from Scripture. No, it's not in Scripture. But, but God has told me. That's arrogant. I do not expect anyone to take one word I say because I say it. I'm saying, look, if what I'm saying is in Scripture, you, you accept it. Not because I said it, because it's in the Bible. And if you go away thinking, no, I'm not persuaded of that, that's not what the Bible says, then ignore what I'm saying. But the trouble is that when you get people teaching all these other ways of doing church, and I don't care whether it's the Catholics or Pentecostals or whatever, whatever other way there is of doing church, what I'm telling you is that the arrogance is that those churches are not what you see in Scripture, but they still want you to accept it purely on their authority that they're doing God's will. That's arrogant. It's arrogant to expect people to just accept that God is speaking to you without any way of verifying it. The only way you can verify something of the Lord is whether or not it's consistent with Scripture. So what we are seeing in Scripture is that as far as Paul was concerned, there was one way of doing church. And he specifically says, all this stuff that I'm teaching you is the Lord's command. Now let me just deal quickly with something that often comes up. People say there are no commands in Scripture as to how to do church. And they're saying because there are no commands in Scripture for how to do church, then what we see in Scripture is purely descriptive. It's merely what they were doing. It's not prescriptive because it's not commanded. They would say we're commanded not to live in sin. You know, we're commanded not to commit adultery. We're commanded to baptise, although most of them still don't do it like the early church did. But yeah, and, and indeed with these things there are commands. But they say, but there are no commands as to how to do church. Well, the first thing I say is this. I've just shown you that there is. Paul says all this church stuff is the Lord's command. So that is an inaccurate statement. When people say there are no commands in Scripture how to do church, that isn't true. I've just shown you there is. But let's, let's just say that this verse wasn't here. Or let's say that someone manages to persuade you that that bit about the Lord's command doesn't apply to what Paul's just written. You know, it applies to something he wrote in a completely different epistle ten years ago. Right? Doesn't actually apply to what he's saying here. Well, let me put this to you. That still wouldn't alter the fact. Because if you see the church doing something universally, then you're going to conclude that they were doing that because that is what they have been universally told to do. I'll give you another example. Who here believes that it's important and right to be part of a church. Who believes that? Right. Now, do you believe that because somehow you've got some fuzzy feeling that you get at some meetings that the Holy Spirit might be telling you that? Or is it your conviction based on your knowledge from Scripture? Right, okay. Now then, let me tell you. There is a verse that says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Yeah, that's, there's, there's a verse that says that. There's, there's a stated command to make sure that you do get together with other Christians. But you could get together with a different Christian from a different church every week. There is not one command in Scripture that you should be part of a church. So why are you all convinced that the Bible says you ought to be part of a church? Well, for this simple reason. The whole of Scripture is written on the assumption that you are. It would be a nonsense. Everything you read in Scripture is written from the clear assumption that you're going to be part of a church. Because if you weren't part of a church, most of what it says is nonsense. Do you see that? The Bible is written on the assumption that God is, is alive, that, that, that there is a God. 
You see, so the point is, even if we didn't have this verse of command, it wouldn't remain the fact that it wouldn't change the fact that we've seen that Paul planted one type of church and one type only. There was set church practice coming together, all right? You have this open participatory time together. You have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. I went into leadership in the other seminar that I'm doing here, you know, sort of like plurality of local leadership with no hierarchy. That's another what we see universally in the early church. So the point is, the fact that we're seeing all this is that is how Paul planted churches, and we've seen from elsewhere here in Corinthians that he works on the assumption that that is what all the churches are like. And the idea that other apostles were planting different types of churches, we've seen that Peter says Paul's writing scripture. Now then, do you think that Peter believed scripture? He did. Well, if Peter believed that Paul was writing scripture, by definition, Peter must have agreed with Paul about what churches are like. I mean, this is just simple logic. This is obvious. You think of it, you accept this unthinkingly in terms that you ought to be part of a church. Because how many people out there are preaching as a serious doctrine that you shouldn't be part of a church? So you accept this unthinkingly because all unbiblical churches still think you should be part of a church. But why you don't think of this in regards to church practice is because the only churches you've known are unbiblical ones. So you, 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 the whole time you've accepted on unbiblical authority something that isn't true. And then you have to really look hard to see it in Scripture. But once you see it in Scripture it becomes absolutely clear. And let me tell you, no serious Bible commentator would disagree with one word I've said about what all the early churches were like. The issue is that when people came along with better ideas than the apostles, people swallowed them. People swallowed them. So the question really boils down now to simply this. That are we free to do church any which way we want? The answer is clearly no. There's one way to do church. Now let me tell you, if you what happens if you try and vary it. If you try and vary what we see in Scripture, what you end up with is not a variation. What you end up with is the exact opposite. Now let me just demonstrate this to you very, very quickly. All right. And what I'm going to say now is true whether it's a Pentecostal church at one end of the spectrum or the Catholic church at the other end of the spectrum. All right. Let's just very, very quickly, what, it, what is the blueprint, okay, for churches? And remember that what happened was the early church fathers came along and they felt the Holy Spirit was leading them to do things differently from the apostles. Well, okay, they didn't have the whole scripture, but the point is, once they did have the whole scripture, they should have tested what they were doing by scripture. But let's, let's just have a look and compare uh, the legacy that the early church fathers left us as opposed to the blueprint that we see in scripture. Okay. Now then, what we see in scripture is this. A church meets in a house. What's the opposite of that? Meeting a religious building. Now, whether it's Pentecostal churches or the Catholic church, it's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. That's not a variation. That's the opposite. Now, if you say, well, you don't have to be a house church, it's a nice day, we'll go in the garden and be a garden church, oh, that's fine, that's no problem. But that's, that's not quite the same as having religious buildings, is it, or special buildings? Because the whole push is, you're small. The idea is that everyone can take verbal part in that gathering and that no one is dominating it or leading it. All right. Okay, so let's, let's have a look at when you come together then, you have an open participatory time where the push is when you come together, each one has. You may all prophesy one by one. Okay, now what's, if you vary that, if you vary that, 
What you end up with is a service with one leader leading it and everyone else being passive. You don't end up with a variation, you end up with the exact opposite. Pentecostal churches get together and do the exact opposite to what the Bible teaches when it comes to church practice. But so does the Catholic Church. Whether you've got a priest up there leading liturgy, or whether you've got a Pentecostal church with the charismatic knees up led from the front, they're still the opposite of what you've got in Scripture. The push in Scripture is the freedom for all to participate. If you vary that, you end up with one or two people doing everything and everyone else just being led. That's not just different, it is the opposite. If you play around with the Lord's Supper, you don't end up with a variation, you end up with a ritual with bread and wine. What's that got to do with having a meal together? The early church had leadership that was raised up from amongst itself, was plural, was not hierarchical. So a church's leadership were guys who'd been in the churches for years, recognised by the church, plural, and they weren't seen to be hierarchical. Now if you mess with that, what do you come out with? You come out with the idea of having one man at the top of the church who comes in from the outside. That's not a variation, it's the exact opposite. And what I'm trying to show you is that the moment that you introduce the idea, hey, we can vary this structure, now where the structure isn't set, you can vary it. But the moment you touch the structure, what you end up with is not a variation, what you end up with is the exact and total opposite. So when you get people saying, well, yeah, we see the way that the early church did it, yeah, okay, that's great, that's great. And then they say, yeah, but you see, the thing is that it was, you know, the early church was in its infancy. Uh, you know, the Holy Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all the truth. Well, I've shown you, yeah, that's the Bible. But what they say is, you know, but the church changed, God developed it. The church kind of evolved as the Holy Spirit led it, okay. Well, let me just put it to you, don't you think it's a bit suspicious? I mean, before you swallow that quite ridiculous idea that I've just outlined, ask yourself the question, why did God start it one way, only to then end it up the exact opposite to what it started off as? And here's the point, without giving us one word in Scripture to indicate that he was going to do that. Why would he have his apostles who were writing and teaching the infallible Word of God, why would they, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be saying, there is one way to do church and it's the Lord's command, if the Lord knew that once the New Testament had been written, he was going to change everything? It's a nonsense, because the only way we can test anything to find out if it's the Lord is by testing it against Scripture. It is the only test you have. And please, do not be deceived by this dangerous notion that there are Christians who are so close to God that they can have revelation that by definition is right. That is a nonsense. That's the Pope. I thought we didn't believe in the Pope. But what we believe in the charismatic, you know, charismatic Christian, I'm baptised with the Spirit, but my goodness, what the charismatic movement has got people believing is that you can be Pope for a day that you can have revelations from God that even though they go against Scripture, they're still of God. Paul wrote to a church and said, like, you be careful, because deceiving spirits are going out. Doctrines of demons are going out. 
when the early church fathers took the Christian church and when it came to church practice taught them the opposite of what the apostles taught that was evil spirits doing that through them now that doesn't mean they're dreadful I cannot tell you how often I have discovered that I've been being deceived by the devil about something it's natural to be deceived by the devil Did you, 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 you're supposed to be deceived by the devil you're a sinner like me that's why we've got the Bible have you ever thought about that? Who needs the Bible if we had a hotline to God? I mean, why, why study something up in the scripture if you can just go for a nice walk and ask the Lord directly and the Holy Spirit will show you? The very reason we've got scripture is as our protection against deception. And remember, all those deceptions that Satan's got ready to drop into our hearts, the problem is we've got a little sin-shaped hole that's perfect for that thing to drop into. Because I'll tell you, the idea, the idea of being a leader with hierarchical authority and being over people and looked up to with awesome respect and, you know, meet Pastor Beresford uh, or, or Elder Beresford, you know. And I've often said, sometimes people abbreviate my name to Berry. Can you imagine? I'd be Elder Berry then. I mean, wouldn't that be dreadful? Oh, here's Elder Berry. Okay. Now, the point is, my pride likes that. I, th I think that's nice. But, but the problem is, what the Lord has shown me and dealt with me over the years is that that might be nice as far as I'm concerned, but it's absolutely horrible. And I don't know about you, but my struggle with sin is this. I hate my sin. And I really like my sin. Is that your struggle? Because if you hated it all the time, you'd never sin. And I bet you do. When you sin, there's only one reason that you ever sin. It's because it takes your fancy at that particular moment. That's what temptation is. Because <laughs> it takes your fancy at that particular moment. So, therefore, I mean, you know, sort of like, if you really got to know me, you could actually, I, I, I could redefine what pride is, believe you me. And what that means is, I need every possible safety device around me to keep me safe. Because if there's someone sitting in this room who left to himself is going to get deceived, it's me. Because the moment I find opportunity, I do. And I need scripture and wise brothers around me and sisters around me to bring me back to my senses. I'll tell you why Jesus did design the church the way he did. It's not arbitrary. It's not just he thought, oh, I, you know, I like that particular shape. There's a reason for it. Think of the church in this way. Think of it like driving a car. Now, in a sinful world, everything is dangerous. Driving a car is dangerous. What's the danger? Impact. Now, there are two types of car. You can have a car with hardly any brakes, no seat belts, no airbags, and the steering only works a little bit. Now, if that car hits impact, you're not very safe. You are not very well protected. Nothing can protect you, nothing can guarantee that you'll never hit, have an impact, unless you never even go in a car. But if you do have an impact, that's a very, very unsafe car. It doesn't have safety features. Now, if you've got a car with airbags, anti-lock braking, you know, seat belts, crumple zones, it doesn't guarantee that you won't end up hitting something. But it means that when you do, all the safety mechanisms are there around you. Now, Jesus designed the church with all the safeties on because there's a danger. 
The danger isn't impact. I'll tell you what the danger is. The danger is pride and deception. Now, unlike with the car, you may spend your whole life driving and never hit anything. When it comes to doing church, you will hit something. It's guaranteed. You will hit the dangers. And the dangers that you will hit, well, there'll be different dangers for different people, but you will hit pride. You will hit sin. Of course you will, you're a sinner. And the church is designed to have all the safeties on. Now, what's one of the biggest dangers in any church? It's big leaders emerging who are too big for their boots and who are given authority to lead you astray. What's the, safety what's the safety mechanism in the church for that? Well, firstly, you don't have a hierarchy. No one's in authority anyway. Any leadership you have is plural. And when a church comes together, it's not a big gathering led by some big wig at the front. It's you sitting around in someone's house and everyone's taking part. Now, that minimises the chance of anyone getting a bit too big for their boots, doesn't it? You see, that's the safety mechanism. The moment, the moment you play around with that, you're taking the safeties off and you will end up deceived. Now here's the whole point. The design of a church is for a purpose. The church is an extended family. One of the other safeties that you've got in a situation like this, if you're part of a church, a small number of people, they've known you for years, you may be an elder, you may have a worldwide teaching ministry, that's fair enough, but in, that, in your church back home, you're just one of the guys. So all you are, you're just friends together. Now, if you get too big for your boots, it's not hard for your best mates to drag you back down to earth, is it? You know, as um, I've, I've, I think it's, uh, as Steve Atkinson says, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's hard to get too important if no one's saluting. But, when Christian leaders spend their days in front of their big church, that they are over having big dramatic meetings, they're not in significant fellowship with anyone in the church. They're only in significant fellowship with other leaders. And I'll tell you what leaders do when they only have significant fellowship with other leaders. Shall I tell you what they do? They butter themselves up and scratch each other's back. I know that. I'm a leader. <laughs> but not anymore, <laughs> because I'm part of a biblical church. It, in, I'm, I'm safer. Because when I get... It's not a question of, of kind of if Beresford gets too big for his boots. It's when he does. <laughs> and anyone who doesn't believe that of themselves is kidding themselves and they're not safe to be a leader. Isn't it interesting? In Jesus' preparation for Peter to be a leader, he said, um, when you've converted, he says, saints going to sift you like wheat. He said, Peter, I know you think you're ready to be a leader. I, 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 I know you think that you're going to die with me. The truth of the matter is, you're going to deny me three I'd never do that, Lord, I'd never deny you. Yeah, yeah, you are Peter. But when you've turned again, when you have failed miserably, when you know that you're no one and you're nothing without me, then feed my sheep. You see, Peter had to learn that he wasn't a success leading failures. He had to learn that it was a failure leading a failure. Well, that's good. We can identify with each other, can't we? See, this is safe Christian leadership. There's a reason why Jesus designed the church to be the way it did. It, he did. It's to keep it safe. That's no guarantee. Look at the Corinthians. But the safeties were all on. And so, therefore, what it's seeing is, is, is kind of... Look, there are two ways to do church. The Apostles' way, which is Jesus' way, or someone else's way. Go back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Look what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Um, yep, and he says... Oh, yeah, yeah, so, sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 17. Yeah, I was just getting a little bit lost there. Yeah, he said, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. <coughs> so there you have it again. There is one way to do church. Now just go back into verse 6. And look what he says here. There's one verse to take away from this conference. Take this one away. It says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself. Uh, this is a 1 Corinthians 4, and now it's verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. I'll read that another way that you could translate it. Do not go beyond Scripture. Because that's what the word Scripture means. What's written? Paul says here, unless it's there in Scripture, do not go, be do not do it. Don't go beyond what you see. And yet for 1900 years, we have been asked by the Christian church at large to believe that after the apostles were dead, after the New Testament scripture had been completed, that men came along, not merely teaching something different to what the apostles taught, but men who taught the exact opposite to what the apostles taught. And for 1900 years, we have swallowed the lie that it's okay to go beyond scripture. Not just that it's okay, but now, let me tell you, when it comes to doing church, with the Christian church at large, virtually any way you do church that goes against Scripture, you will have the smile of the Christian church. If you do church according to Scripture and according to what the Bible teaches, you will find that virtually every other Christian church thinks you're being a troublemaker and thinks that somehow you're of the devil. Here, Paul commands us not to go beyond Scripture. And yet the Christian church today tells us that we mustn't go by Scripture. That's what happens if you mess with what the Bible teaches about how to do church. And so... What it comes down to, and actually it's interesting as well, that at the beginning of his letters to the Corinthians, one of the key themes that Paul deals with is there's man's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. And he says, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And he sets the scene by saying, now look, who knows best? God or his people? And I want to ask you now, when it comes to how to do church, who knows best? The church or Jesus? I think Jesus knows best. And if I've got to make a choice between your opinion 
on my opinion and Jesus' opinion, I know which one I want to go with. Now, for years as a Christian, I didn't know what Jesus' opinion was about church. So I was innocent. No problem. But when I discovered from Scripture what his opinion about church is, I would now be in disobedience to him if I did church any other way. Now, you've done a very foolish thing here at this conference. You're not innocent anymore. Now, you must take away what you're hearing. Don't, don't, don't accept a thing because we're saying it. At the end of the day, we're just saying, here is what Scripture teaches. You must go away and you must decide that for yourself. Now, I'm asking you to do it honestly. Don't go away from here and say, eh, they're wrong. No, you've got to take what we're saying away and you've got to, in your mind and heart, demonstrate to yourself that we're wrong according to Scripture. Now, if you can do that, we're wrong. Don't listen to us. But if you can't, I'm sorry, but that means we're right. And if that's the case, you're not innocent anymore. And from that moment onwards, if you do church other than what you now know to be the Lord's command, then you're in disobedience to the Lord. Now, I'm sorry to have done that to you. No, I'm not. I'm delighted to have done that to you. Because I'm delighted. I'm delighted that I'm part of a church based on Scripture. I'm, I'm a very rare person, I'm a believer, who's happy with his church. Do you know what? My biggest problem is not the church I go to. So many believers, their church is their biggest problem. When you're part of a biblical church, do you know what the joy is? You'll probably have more problems than when you're in an unbiblical church. But for the first time in your life, you'll have the right problems. Many, many problems that Christians and churches deal with in their lives stem directly from not being biblical. When you're part of a biblical church, all those problems will go away. What do you do when the pastor's getting unbe you know, unbearable? You know, when he's getting pushy and people are bossing you around and making you feel guilty for not giving enough money to them? That's not a problem I have. And in a biblical church, if someone got a bit, you know, overbearing, whether it was an elder or not, but even if an elder got overbearing, do you know what the rest of the church would say? They, they tell him to go hang it on his beak. <laughs> no, you'll have other problems. You'll have the problems you're meant to have. You'll have the problems of being sanctified, of being made holy, of growing together in the Lord in reality of relationships. You'll actually be fellowshipping with people. You'll, you'll never quite know what the back of their neck looks like. You'll never have to look at it because you'll never be sitting in a row. You'll have your brothers and sisters face to face the whole time. You'll be like a family. You'll be like a family. It'll be tough, but you won't be lonely again. So, you know, I put it to you, you've got two choices. What Jesus wants or what someone else wants. And we're just saying, hey, come on, let's be novel. Let's do what Jesus wants. Let's, let's do something that is very rarely done when it comes to church life. We've tried everything else, and indeed, all the time, we're being introduced to new models of church to try. Let's, let's, let's be more radical than any of that. Let's try what the Bible teaches. I reckon that's got to be the right one. I'm happy to leave it there. But if anyone wants to come back, please feel absolutely free. Or if anyone wants me to go and hang it on my beak, feel absolutely free. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www 
house-church.org.